Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the NTT20 Monday podcast. We are EFL focused. We are Ali Maxwell and on the line with me, George Ellick. And the championship returned. It came back. We spent all week thinking about it, maybe longer. And as it was, it was weird and great. Uh, it, there was late drama, as is often the case. Uh, why was it weird? Well, apart from the, the experience of watching games behind closed doors, it was weird results-wise as well. Five of the top six teams dropped points. Two wins and a draw for the bottom three. Only two home wins in 12 games. And seven of the eight teams that won beat teams above them. So as first weekends to review go, George Ellick, this is a, a pretty tasty one. Plenty for us to get our teeth into how you're getting on this Monday morning. I'm good, mate. I'm good. Um, I'm just quite happy that this weekend could have gone one very boring way, a very tiresome way where we'd be talking about the top two extending their lead and the bottom three, you know, falling further behind. But instead of that, we have everything has just been thrown up in the air. You know, we're coming into this podcast, any preconceptions that any part of the championship, whether that is promotion, uh, the battle for the top six or the relegation places, all of them. I mean, I've seen so many people being like, ah, basically every part of the championship is going to go down to the wire. And, and, you know, knowing the championship like we do, we'll probably be sitting here in a week's time talking about how it's gone the other way. But for this moment in time, it feels like there are <clears throat> probably seven teams, eight teams who could get relegated. It feels like there are about seven teams who could get those second two spots in the playoffs and four teams who could get automatically promoted. What else could you want? I just love how, because everything's so tight, because we've had so long waiting for, for the resumption of this league, that there are fans, or every single fan of any team before the weekend would have had, you know, best case scenario in their head, would have gone through all the scenarios, would therefore know the worst case scenario. And you've got some fans who will be delighted with the way their team performed. Um, the, the Swansea fans probably jump out there. Of course, Cardiff fans as well. We're going to get into all the games individually. Wigan fans will have been wondering, you know, that pre-lockdown form, five clean sheets in a row, was that all going to be out the window? Were they going to be that good side that we saw for, for a few games or were they going to be the relegation threat side that we'd seen for the majority of the season? And it was the former. Uh, and then on the flip side, you've got teams who... You know, teams like Huddersfield who probably thought, OK, let's start with a win. Let's get one or two early wins and we'll ease away from any relegation fears. Uh, and they will be feeling very frustrated. The Middlesbrough fans will be feeling absolutely furious. We're going to get into all of the games individually, uh, George. But first, a, a sort of overriding review I want from you on, uh, well, either the viewing experience for you, what it was like watching these games uh, behind closed doors with no fans, but also from a footballing perspective, all of the variables we spoke about and all the questions that we struggled to answer before the games about how things would look and what this would mean for various different footballing reasons. Uh, what's your sort of main takeaway from the weekend? I think more questions than answers, really. Um, I, I think the only thing that was possible coming out of this weekend is that we would see that actually not much had changed, but that quite clearly isn't the case. Um, the championship is, is fairly unpredictable anyway. Uh, but this weekend we saw just two teams um, who were away from home not pick up points. Uh, those two teams were Leeds, who were pretty much the shortest price favourites of the whole weekend, uh, and Bristol City. Um, 
it was very hard to make sense of basically everything that happened. And the only thing I can really compare it to is the start of a new season. You know, you, you come into, normally come into August with a, with a, an idea of how a team is going to look based upon what they did at the back end of last season. But you place way less emphasis on that than you normally would during during the season. You know, they're, they're quite clearly something of the same team, but they've changed enough to be a different side. And even though we haven't had a transfer window, we have seen a lot of players returning from injury. We've seen a lot of players leaving clubs uh, or not, you know, not playing for clubs any longer. And it just had that first game of the season feel to me where sides weren't necessarily the same iteration of themselves as, as they were before. And, you know, you look at someone like Derby County, who have a player in Louis Sibley, who I'm sure we're going to talk about fairly soon, <laughs> who, the who's, who's an eighth who's an 18-year-old who'd made his, his first league start just before, you know, three months ago. The development of him as a footballer and his, and his him as like a, you know, at that age, physically, is going to be fairly pronounced. It's going to be quite obvious, I would say. So therefore, Derby are probably in a much better situation now than they would have been beforehand because they have a player who's going to be developing very, very quickly, playing at a level higher than he would have played in, played three months ago. So it's, it's things like that. It's, it's difficult to really put your finger on. Um, but yeah, I would say more questions than answers. And for anybody kind of looking to make predictions and things, I, I personally am not taking very much, uh, I'm not putting very much weight into what happened in the couple of weeks before um, it finished. My, my only take on the um, on the crowd noise and things is it, <laughs> it feels like, and this goes into the Premier League as well, the one time I really notice, notice it is when there's been a really good save. That feels like the one noise that, that they can't recreate and you right. find yourself and you find yourself watching these really good saves and thinking to yourself like that was that was quite a good save wasn't it but <laughs> you're not really sure because no one else has reacted um so that would be there was one on in the norwich game uh apologies for watching premier league football but there was in the norwich game on friday night where quite early on cruel made a really good smart save down to his right and nothing really happened and i was like I swear that was really good, but I, I mean, maybe it wasn't. I don't know. The same, <laughs> the same thing happened when Dean Henderson made a, a save from Keenan Davis in that first game on, on Wednesday night. It was like astonishingly good save, and it just didn't just didn't get the didn't get the noise it deserved, shall we say? Uh, I'm definitely a, a crowd noise on kind of guy. I don't know what that says mm. about me. I know that lots of people disagree wholeheartedly with that, uh, but I hope if you're in that camp, you know, you don't think too much less of, of me. I'm sure we can work through it. Um, look, let's start getting into individual games. I, I'm going to talk about my sort of main takeaway, or rather what the most noticeable thing for me was, uh, and it's to do with attacking execution, and it sort of drifts into the realms of style of play and, and things like that. But I think there's going to be ample opportunity to discuss this as we talk about individual games. So let's start with, with Cardiff and Leeds. Cardiff running out 2-0 winners on Sunday lunchtime. George, I would like to hear your thoughts on this football match, please. I have a few. I have a fair few. I mean, it's... As somebody who, you know, tipped up leads on the betting show last week, it would be very easy for me to come on here now and say, you know, Leeds were the better team. They created the better chances. Nine times out of ten, they would have won this game. And, and I wouldn't be wrong. But... This wasn't a good performance. This was irrespective of the fact that it was 2.5 to 0.2 XG. There was so much wrong with the way that Leeds played. That it, I, I just I think this is a case where you have to be fairly concerned. 
um, you know, give Cardiff credit where it's due. And, you know, the fact does remain that and this wasn't a 2-0 match for Cardiff. This wasn't a, a game in which they created the chances to justify scoring two goals and Leeds certainly created enough um, to score. And, you know, I would say that Alex Smithies was probably man of the match for the saves that he made at crucial times. But there was there were so many troubling performances from Leeds. It's hard to really get past that. I mean, a lot, lot of rust across the whole footballing landscape this weekend. Don't forget that. Yeah, but that... I don't think that is a justification for a poor performance because mm-hmm. do you then have to, you then have to caveat every good performance with that as well? I mean, no, but well, I, get, I suppose to... I suppose no, but maybe just it means be careful. Not just talking about Leeds, but talking about all teams, be careful about leaping to large conclusions based on one game. Is I suppose what I'm saying. And I'm not saying I'm, that you're doing that. I'm just no, like I, I'm not going to sit here and write off Leeds in in any sense. And as I say, they. You know, they, they performed poorly and still created good enough chances to beat a side who are now looking likely to finish in the top six on the back of this result. But going through the performances individually, like Calvin Phillips, as I said, was was incredibly poor. I mean, that's the worst I've seen him play since Marcelo Bielsa came to the club in every single facet of his game. His passing was off. His um, ball winning ability wasn't particularly good. He got an incredibly stupid booking uh, in injury time in the first half, which meant he was having to... You know, he was skating on thin ice for the whole of the second half in a match that really needed his combative skills. Um, he was very poor. I thought that um, Tyler Roberts was probably the only bright spark in the team because at least he attempted to make things happen playing in that number 10 role. I thought Stuart Dallas was really, well, both fullbacks to be fair, but I thought Dallas was very, very sloppy in possession. Um, I thought Harrison did um, look more like Harrison of old where he was trying a lot, but nothing was really coming off for him. Um, although I would say that he was unlucky twice, first with Smithy's brilliant save, closing him down at the near post. And then, of course, Bamford, who, you know, had, even for him, probably his worst display of the season, at least that I've seen, uh, both in terms of his link-up play, getting in the way of goal-bound shots, um, you know, missing a couple of opportunities, going for... I mean, the, the one that really annoyed me was the ball into the box of the back post, and he's gone for it with, with his left with his left foot. Um, he's gone for it with his wrong foot, David Priest's wrong hand. Uh, one of those, where if he if he goes for it with his weaker foot, he can get not only more time to get there, but also just he'll you know he probably would have got to the ball, um, and that is the striker's instinct that you need, uh, and would have made a massive difference to this game. So, you know, normally I would sit here after a, a performance like that and a game like that, saying, well, the good news is is that Leeds, if they perform to that level and put in performances like that every week until the end of the season, they'll get promoted. And the fact is, they probably will. Because they are at a level where they can um, turn in a performance like that and still be better than their opposition, and I'm not for a second saying I expect them to to crack up um, or fall apart. But uh, they the, the drop off from where they were in the, in the second week of March to where they were on Saturday was massive. Um, so that's important. And before you know, I, I get it back to you. You have to give credit to to Cardiff um, anyway, because they didn't create a host of chances. Cardiff frustrated Leeds' possession-based game. Like, if you look at the pass maps, uh, especially of Click and uh, and Phillips, they, they could barely get on the ball in any, in any dangerous areas. And were, and were rushed and forced into making passes that didn't really retain possession in any way. And the finishes of both Hoyler and Glatzel were superb. So, mm. fair play to them for that. Um, well, I, I just is... think, yeah, they... they... We thought 
and the logic was sound, I think. We thought that they might be overcome by Leeds' intensity, which many teams have been pre-lockdown, but especially after such a break. But they, they weren't. They managed to avoid getting swarmed in their own third or in their own half. I thought they did very well in possession, and that's not necessarily to mean they were ambitious with the ball and they tried to play you know, combination short passing, but they, were, they did well in possession just by avoiding... Uh, the sorts of things that Leeds suffered, and that is sloppy mistakes in dangerous areas. So, you know, they didn't lose it in dangerous areas. I can't, although Leeds had the majority of the ball and a lot of the ball in Cardiff's final third with this, that set defence in front of them, both of Cardiff's goals came from sloppy, rusty Leeds passing. And we saw Cardiff breaking to score within seconds with Leeds players sort of scrambling and backpedalling. And I can't think of too many times where Cardiff were sloppy and rusty and, and scrambling and backpedalling. So I think huge credit to, to Cardiff. Neil Harris's record since he's taken over there stacks up really well. And, and they are one of the teams like uh, Swansea City, their rivals, who will be feeling pretty positive. Um, and why not? Because it, it's, a, it's a huge coup. It's a big scalp. It's a great way to come back from lockdown. I, I couldn't help but laugh uh, and think of you as well to an extent, George, when... At halftime, the stats flashed up. Zero touches uh, Cardiff had in Leeds' box in the first half, but they were 1-0 up. Um, and yeah, you can't get away from the fact that I'm sure Pablo Hernandez's calm creativity would only have helped because, like many teams, Leeds just struggled uh, against a set defence in a low block. Couldn't quite, you know, not on the same wavelength, couldn't quite execute. And, you know, most teams, certainly their rivals, West Brom, their title rivals, um, they also weren't in sync in, in and around the box. And, that, that was a, a feature of, of, of the whole league and, dare I say it, the whole Premier League as well. So, um, yeah, lots of credit to Cardiff. Lovely finish, finish from Glatzel, as you said. Um, and, and concerns for Leeds, but they have a chance to put it right against Fulham uh, next weekend. And, yeah, it, it's, it's going to be interesting to see how that one goes because Fulham, we talk about teams needing to be sort of 9 or 10 out of 10 to have these results against Leeds. Um how often do we think Fulham have played a 9 out of 10 or a 10 out of 10 game under Scott Parker? We're going to talk about their game against Brentford in just a second. Uh, just to talk about West Brom nil, Birmingham nil. It certainly wasn't the best spectacle uh, of the uh, of the championship weekend, but a great point for, for Birmingham. They also defended very resolutely. Um, they did not cause West Brom the problems that, Credif, that, that Cardiff caused uh, you know, in transition and, and and they didn't manage to seize upon any sloppiness for West Brom. But certainly Clark Salter and Harley Dean, I thought were really solid. Keefton Bell in front of them, rolling back the years and just screening really, really well. Uh, and I, I personally would not be particularly concerned from a West Brom perspective. You know, it's, it's not ideal to drop points at home against Birmingham, um, especially with Brentford having won and you've got that big game on Friday night, which we're excited about. But the performance was fine and they suffered in the same way that many other teams did. They they weren't on the same wavelengths that, you know, the intricate passing in and around the edge of the box, which normally comes a little easier. Uh, it didn't happen. And I think, you know, when the onus is on teams to break other teams down, that's where we've seen teams struggle. Well, that's where I, I think we've seen teams struggle more than more than usual. So I wouldn't be too concerned. I think that they will start to click again. You know, ideally for them, that would happen on Friday night against Brentford because certainly by the end of the Brentford Fulham game, uh, Bees had started to click. But um, yeah, I don't have a huge amount else to say about that game. I watched all of it and it just, 
you know, it, it wasn't quite attack v defence, but it was a it was a resolute Birmingham defending against a, a, a rusty West Brom. That that's kind of my main takeaway from that game. Uh, do you want to talk about Fulham and, and Brentford, George? Well, I think we can speak to somebody who was at the game, can't we? Um, <laughs> we definitely can. We can speak to somebody who who we both have known um, for a couple of years, who we probably never thought we'd be able to get on the podcast because he famously doesn't watch any EFL football. <laughs> but uh, but delighted that you're other podcast partner it's basically like getting the mistress on um uh michael cox uh who is the kind of analytics writer for uh tactics writer for sorry i should say for the athletic um and he went to craven cottage uh, an empty craven cottage on saturday um to watch fulham against brentford for his piece uh, which is up online now um comparing mitrovic and watkins so if you want to read the piece before we speak to michael go to theathletic.co.uk forward slash ntt20 that will get you a seven day free trial and then 50 percent off if you subscribe um great to see michael writing about the efl and interesting to get his thoughts so here's michael cox of the athletic on the line michael is obviously uh, the star of the magnificently presented Zonal Marking podcast, uh, which is uh, one of <laughs> one of the Athletics' uh, real sort of billboard bits of uh, of product, I would say. We were just quite excited, Michael, because you, you tend to cover the Premier League and the major European leagues. So uh, when I found out that you were off to Craven Cottage, uh, it felt like a, a, a good time to get you on to chat some EFL football. Uh, and the first thing to ask really is about the matchday experience. You were one of few in the ground. Uh, what was it like? Yeah, I mean, um, well, as you know, Ali, when I'm when I'm not working, I'm usually at a non-league game, and I think the last one I went to before this, there was an attendance of something like 210 people. So, from from that perspective, it wasn't that much different to what I was kind of used to. Um, I mean, as, as journalists, we were extremely socially distanced. Um, it felt weird having to wear a mask when there was no one probably within eight to ten meters of me. It was quite. Uh, excellent. And I was like right at the back of the stand, um, and yeah, it was it was slightly peculiar to watch such a high level game like that. Um, first, there'd be no crowd, and obviously at Fulham, there's still no Riverside stand. I thought there might have been some progress on that, but it's still pretty much nothing there. Um, in terms of how it affected the game, one thing I noticed was there was just quite a lot of kind of laughing and joking between opposition players, which I'm not sure you would necessarily get in a kind of high stakes derby match. I think I'm right in saying it was originally scheduled to be like a, a weekday in. in Friday night. Friday yeah, Friday night, night game. So it would have been proper atmosphere and mm. quite fiery. And yeah, it, it, it did feel like a training game in that respect. There was there was lots of kind of comments and laughing and joking and banter between players, which if there'd been a, a packed, uh, you know, Hammersmith end or whatever, you probably wouldn't have got that. Were the crowd noises being piped in in the stadium or was that just for us watching on Sky Sports? <laughs> no. So I gather that in some championship games, there has been crowd noise in the ground. Uh, I know Luton had a friend who was at Luton who said that was um, the case. But no, here it was just, um, yeah, there was nothing like that. But I gather on Sky there wasn't the option to turn it off as there has been for the Premier League games or it might have just been my dad couldn't work out what channel to put it on. Um, (laughs) But no, for this there was no crowd noise, which, um, yeah, personally I prefer. Michael, it's fair to say you are somebody who watches a lot of Premier League football, a lot of European football a lot of non-league football, but uh, maybe not so much EFL stuff. So it's great to get you on this podcast. But it's interesting for us to speak to somebody who is obviously like a tactics expert going into a game between two sides, Brentford and Fulham, that Ali and I know very well, but you probably don't know so well, especially with Brentford not being in the Premier League any t- time recently. So what were your 
kind of overwhelming thoughts from the game tactically from the two sides? I mean, first of all, I thought the quality was really good. And I mean that, you know, judging it not as a championship game, but as the first game back after this break, I thought both sides played pretty well. Um, I think I think Brentford, to me, looks a, a bit more organised in their attacking play. I think there was more interplay between the front players. Um, I, I think they did well at pushing the, the two midfielders, Jensen and, and De Silva, into attacking positions kind of in the pockets either side of the three attackers. I thought Fulham at times had, had quite good opportunities to counter um, when Brentford pushed a lot of players forward. And I think they fell down because essentially Mitrovic doesn't really make the right runs or, or doesn't feel he has the pace to make those kind of runs on the break. Um, but yeah, I, I just thought it was a good game. And and two sides who I guess you could both you know categorise them both as kind of um, possession-based sides, front foot sides. They want to take the game to the opposition. But... I mean, I was there mainly to look at the two forwards because, um, you know, obviously two top goal scorers, Mitrovic and Watkins. And I thought there was a big difference in, in how the teams tried to service those two and get the ball into goal scoring positions. The game was was a good game. I agree with you, Michael. And for the first game back, I think it was a, it was a good... It was probably one of the most aesthetically pleasing games played in the championship this weekend. There were certainly a lot of games, and I think I watched five out of 12 and I've spoken to people at most of the other ones, that a lot of the feedback has been this was a, a miserable um, football match to watch just because of the rustiness. And, and look, we saw that in this game as well. Uh, how many times did Brentford, uh, as Michael say, work the ball into good areas in the final third, uh, down the sides uh, a lot, but also just sort of just outside the box? And then the final ball wouldn't quite work or the teammates wouldn't necessarily be on the same wavelength. That's something we saw across the whole division and it was certainly affecting uh, these two teams. The, the thing that I sort of took away from it mostly was they kind of traded blows, right? Like at different parts of the game, it felt like Fulham were on top. At different parts of the game, it felt like Brentford were on top. It might be too easy to use this, but it almost fell into quarters for me. And obviously we have the, the longer breaks now, these drinks breaks midway through each half. So... It is almost like a four quarters game now, and Fulham were 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 out the blocks a bit quicker. I felt Brentford probably growing into the game before half time, and then Fulham better from forty five to to sixty five, and obviously Brentford finished the game stronger, and and ultimately were the only team that could execute in a game where both teams were kind of struggling to execute in 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 the final third. Um, what was your sort of main takeaway, George, from from this game? Because yeah, it, it, it just was really even. Brentford won 2-0. I don't think I'm keen to say, oh my God, aren't Brentford incredible and oh my God, aren't Fulham rubbish. It, it, it was, you know, it was pretty marginal and it just came down to execution in the end. Yeah, I think I agree with what Michael said earlier where it was two decent sides. I don't think either side were necessarily um, far clear of the others. I think they both put in much better performances earlier in the season as well and it's probably to be expected. At this stage, as we've seen from a fair few sides, not many really came out. Um, you know, Swansea, certainly one of them, and, and probably Derby, but not many teams really hitting the ground running. I think no one could really complain that Brentford um, won the game. I think they were the deserving winners. Um, and I think the reasons why they're the deserving winners are kind of touched upon in Michael's piece, which you can read now over at The Athletic. Uh, it's titled Mitrovic versus Watkins, assessing the merits of the championship's top scorers. Uh, at the end of the piece, you mentioned how you compare the two players and you ask who's better, well, it doesn't really matter. But in the actual body itself, you kind of summarise why, for me, 
Brentford are the more complete team because you've got Mitrovic, who's a striker who has two very defined roles, one of which is to win the first ball from from normally the goalkeeper or from the centre-backs and, and win that first ball and try and get the knockdowns. And then his second role is to make be a nuisance and a bit of a bulldozer inside the box as well. Whereas in Watkins, you have a player who, you know, runs the channels very well. He's very capable to pull wide and pr- provide space for the onrushing attacking midfielders. He is a very lively presence in the box as well. You know, is that how it played out for you in terms of, I know Watkins didn't score either, either of the goals, but just the advantage that Brentford ended up, you know, showing and getting the three points was maybe summarised by just having a little bit more about them. Yeah, I agree with you. I think it was only the second time I've watched Watkins live and, and I was really impressed with him. His all-round game, his movement. Um, he's obviously not as much of a target man as Mitrovic, but when Brentford do put the ball to his head, his awareness is really good in terms of just flicking the ball almost Giroud-like for kind of onrushing midfielders. So, yeah, I mean, certainly from, uh, you know, I kind of did the analysis of, of the performances with the, with arrows and screenshots and stuff and and from that perspective it's it's a lot easier to make a case that Watkins is is a better player really because Mitrovic you know everyone knows he hang up crosses and he's really good at winning the ball but yeah the, the movement the all-round game of Watkins I thought was really impressive and just you know like I say I think there's just more understanding between the the Brentford players I feel like Mitrovic you could put him in any championship side tomorrow and he played probably roughly the same and players would know how to get the best out of him but there was just a couple of really nice moves for you know at one point Pontius Janssen just fired the ball into to Watkins feet and as soon as Janssen hit that ball Jensen was making a run in behind without even really knowing that Watkins was there but he knew he was there because that's what they worked on kind of thing and and yeah they were just a joy to watch Brentford at, at some points they weren't at their fluid best but just that commitment to I think good movement more than anything you know both both sides have have a focus on possession and and lots of players who can pass the ball well but I just thought the movement of Brentford was a little bit more integrated and a little bit more advanced Um, and I mean just as a general kind of takeaway from the game it was a it felt to me a slightly weird not atmosphere because obviously there was no atmosphere but it was a strange situation because neither side really is going to get promoted automatically neither side is kind of do you, do, you know, do you not think? Well, we're going to be talking about that at another stage in the podcast. But I think, okay, I think okay, after, we're, not calling it, we're not calling it over yet. That's what we're okay. saying. Well, I'll, re- I'll rephrase that. <laughs> they're the outsiders for automatic promotion and they're not battling to get in the playoffs. So it was almost like I felt in that situation, maybe the managers would want to kind of keep their cards close to their chest. And if there's a tactical surprise they've been working on over the three-month period... Maybe it's worth saving that for the playoffs, which, of course, the final or maybe one of the semi-finals could be these sides against each other. So, yeah, I got the sense, not the sides are playing within themselves, but they weren't revealing everything that they've got and maybe not revealing everything they've worked on over the last three months. thought there were a few uh, other individual performers that it's worth pointing out. Um, Reed at the base of midfield for Fulham. You know, you've got McDonald, you've got Arta, you've got Reed, who had been injured pre-lockdown and it was something of a surprise to see him start that in that position because he's smaller I think there's probably a, a sense that he might be less effective defensively than someone like McDonald whose, whose presence is much bigger but he's so much more mobile than McDonald and he's 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 one of those sort of snappy defensive midfield players that probably uh, yeah as I'm kind of hinting at might 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 be underrated defensively because he just is small um, but he was very good on the ball as well. I thought he looked really sharp, a big positive for, for Fulham. And I, I know Ted Knutson was tweeting about the game, 
was was going pretty big on on the difference in Fulham after he went off uh, and the fact that that was at the point where Brentford sort of took a bit of a stranglehold in the last 10 minutes of the game. So, um, you know, Michael Hector, I thought was very good at the back as well. Virgil van Mike, as we call him uh, down in the championship. He, I mean, how many times? We've been talking about Brentford's combinations out wide being one of their strengths for two or three years now. It's something that they're so good at. They're so patient. Um, you know, in the same way that Sheffield United are, although they play a different system, you'll often see three or four Brentford players combining out wide to work it into a position where they can get a low cross or a cutback. Um, and they did that so often, and yet the final ball never quite reached Watkins or it didn't quite happen until the very end, until Ben Rama did get on the end. That's all it took was one exceptional ball from Marcondes. But for the most part, Hector was was there to clear. And I think it's worth pointing out that, that he had a good game as well. I must say... Tom Kearney was rusty and that could be down to lockdown. But, I mean, we haven't been talking about him in nearly the same glowing terms as we did two years ago, George, which which is a shame no. because he's such a lovely player. Um, and then I guess it's worth shouting out Raya as well. I feel, I feel, I feel bad for Michael. Because? He's obviously only seen any Premier League Tom Kearney and <laughs> Saturday's Tom Kearney, which, uh, which are not the Tom Kearney that we, that we know and love. So Absolutely. Yeah, I mean... Uh, I saw a bit of him in the run-in when Fulham got promoted, what, uh, two seasons ago, must have been. And yeah, was was a brilliant player. I mean, kind of proper number 10 in terms of how he dominated the game. I thought his role here was a little bit odd. Fulham kind of starting as a 4-2-3-1, but he was pushing forward to be like a, a second attacking midfielder, which I thought was going to really leave Reed with a huge space to cover. But like you say, Ali, I thought he did really well behind, uh, behind Kearney. I think probably the most impressive of... Um, of the midfielders for Fulham. Although Cordova really did hit the bar as well, which obviously would have changed the game in the first half. One of Kearney's just... big issues, uh, sorry, George, is that he is, and and you know I love him, listeners, because I was banging on about him so much, but looking at it the other way, he is slow and he is very one-footed. And if you can get someone who can, you know, put enough pressure on him and in the right way to to sort of cut off any potential for him to... Um, open a can of beans with that left peg, then that that really does restrict him. Um, what were you going to say, George? Well, it's just that I've you know I've made no secret on this podcast that I am yet to be convinced by Scott Parker as a manager, and I think a big reason for that is his inability to get the best out of Tom Kearney back in a league where he's dominated before. And you know, in Michael's piece, he talks about how Mitrovic and, and Watkins kind of symbolise. Um, both clubs and when in Mitro you've got an international who's the highest paid player in the league and Watkins you've got a guy like Brentford who's risen up through the divisions and I guess in a way the same can be said of the two managers you've got Scott Parker household name former you know footballer of the year England international uh, club legend at Fulham and then in Brentford you have Thomas Frank who is a who stands for everything that Matthew Benham has installed in terms of an analytical approach. He's somebody who has bided his time. He's been a student of that side of the game and now he's getting his chance to, to lead a side. So I guess my last question to Mike would be, it's only one three-month break. You're obviously not going to Scott Park. What do you make of those two managers and the way that they set up their teams? Yeah, I mean, I can only go along with, with kind of what you imply there. I think I think Fulham, to me, they look like a side who's just desperately trying to get back to the Premier League. And, and you know, Parker, almost because he's from the Premier League, almost feels like, yeah, he'll know how to get that done. I think he must have got promotion before at some point. Um, but yeah, Brent, Brentford, to me, just seemed a bit more integrated and a bit more complex in the way that they moved the ball. 
Um, I mean, I don't think Brentford have any Premier League experience at all in their ranks, do they? From from what I can remember off the top of my head, there might have been one or two, but it's just incredible. So. That, yeah, it's just incredible. They've they picked up so many good players, not just from the lower leagues, but you know, a, a couple from abroad as well. And and they're the kind of side that if they were in the Premier League, in terms of style, they wouldn't look out of place at all. I know it's an obvious thing to say, and, and that's not necessarily a guarantee that they would survive because you know, you could say the same about Norwich throughout this year. They, they've often looked really good when they've played the big sides, but have constantly lost 1-0 or 2-1 against sides and obviously adrift at the bottom and probably going to return. But yeah, I mean, Brentford look in really good shape over the long term. Um, I think where, even if they were to get promoted and it was a bit too early for them, they'd, they'd probably still use that to build for the long term, a little bit like how Norwich are doing. I'd say in, in a way a bit like how Burnley did five years ago where they... Mm-hmm. They went up. They didn't blow the money. They they thought if we go up, come down, and then go up again, we'll have a good shot staying there for a long period the second time. So, yeah, I mean, it's um, I think it's just they're quite an interesting story, Brentford, and there's been a lot of focus on them over the last few years. Um, and if and when they do get to the Premier League, I think it'll just be really good fun. I thought Norgard had an excellent game, uh, screening sort of at his unfussy best, winning the ball back and and providing that screen to the Brentford defence that they they didn't have for so many years before he joined, um, but also with his forward passing and how quickly he finds the feet of uh, often Ben Rama, who's tucked in off the left, or or one of those advanced eights, Jensen uh, or De Silva. And, and we have to mention Mark Ondes before we let you go. Um, he's always been, you know, when you think how good Brentford's recruitment has been, and that is something you cannot argue with, um, both in terms of making money uh, and increasing the club's revenue, uh, but also in terms of the players that they now have at their disposal challenging towards the top of the championship. I mean, Marcondes was kind of the blot on the copybook. Uh, he came over with a high reputation, uh, having been, I think, Danish Player of the Year for Nordschland, uh, and it really didn't work. It felt like there wasn't it felt like he, he didn't quite fit in any of the roles somehow in Brentford's 4-3-3, whether it was off the left, whether it was as a as a number nine, sort of deep lying, uh, whether it was as an advanced number eight, which is where I think he came on and played on the weekend, uh, although he did deliver the ball from out wide. He he went back to, to Denmark, I think, on loan, and it, it's just one of those where it's sort of... Sort of roll your eyes and say, pr- pretty classic Brentford. The one the one everyone thought was a bit of a was a bit of a bust comes back and based on only a handful of appearances just pre-lockdown and, and in the friendlies and now uh, on the weekend as well, it looks like he might be ready to come and, and start contributing for this Brentford side. So that would be very welcome for them. Um, Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, the Athletics Tactics and Tactical Trends writer, uh, part of the Zonal Marking podcast as well. Uh, if you'd Great like, podcast. If you'd like to read Michael's piece, which focuses on Mitrovic and Watkins, their battle for the golden boot, and just sort of analysing the two as players within the teams that they play for. You can head to theathletic.co.uk forward slash NTT20 if you're not already a subscriber. You'll get a seven-day free trial, so you can read everything that's on the platform at the moment, uh, and you'll also get 50% off your subscription if you decide to go with it uh, going forward, and that's about £2.50 a month. So do give The Athletic a go today if you are not a subscriber. Uh, And thank you, Michael, for, for a wonderful debut on the Not The Top 20 podcast. My pleasure. Not sure when I'll next be doing a football league game, but if and when I do, I'm always happy to join you. <laughs> Top man. Thanks, mate. Right, moving down the table because it's all set up for next weekend, isn't it? Brentford, West Brom, Friday night, Leeds, Fulham uh, on Saturday at 3pm. And before that, the early game uh, is Cardiff 
and Preston. Now, both teams on 57 points, uh, but with the dotted line between them, Preston clinging on to their final playoff spot at the moment, having drawn on the weekend. Again, we're going to talk about a little bit later. Let's get into some of those playoff chases. George, do you want to talk about the early game as it was down at Millwall? Millwall 2, Derby 3. Anything stand out for you here? Yeah, I think we saw... Um, well, not the birth because he did something quite special before the before the break. But uh, Louis Sibley, it's it's hard to really think of many occasions where a young player had stepped up in the fashion that Sibley did on Saturday, um, going to um, an empty Millwall, going to the Den and putting three past them, scoring a hat trick on just his second start, having scored an absolute screamer um, the day the match before the the, uh, the football break. I mean, it's unbelievable to think, and you know, there's there's obviously the narrative around him playing alongside Wayne Rooney, um, and, you know, for an 18-year-old to be playing alongside a former England, you know, captain and top goal scorer, being managed by Philippe Koku, a player who, you know, achieved so much in Europe as a uh, as a player. It's hard to really think of a better place for his progression. And you know, the first goal was an unbelievable bit of individual skill, kind of slaloming through um, the Millwall defence before. You know, placing a lovely left to finish in the top right-hand corner. The second uh, goal was showed that he's not too one-footed. A really nice finish across the goalkeeper into the bottom left-hand corner with his right mm, foot. That was lovely. And then I, I initially, I think it was Ryan Conway, I think, who, who tweeted that the third goal was a scuff. I'm not having that at all. I think it was a beautiful finish. Mm. Um, rolled into the rolled into the corner as well. Um, I got very excited about him. I mean, it's it's fair to say that that yourself um, and a, and a few Derby fans were were cooing about Sibley before. I hopped on the bandwagon, um, but luckily I, I was I was lucky enough to be on Five Live on Saturday, and I gave him the big one. Um, you know, I tried to 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 do you know conjure up some of the same language as, as remember the name Wayne Rooney for for those listening, because um, because it does feel like this is it. You know, if you hadn't heard of Louis Sibley uh, on Saturday at midday, and the first time you heard about him was him scoring these three goals, then. I have a feeling, you know, that thing where you hear something for the first time and then suddenly you can't get away from it. It's everywhere. Mm. I feel like that that's going to happen here because I don't think this lad is going away anytime soon. Yeah, we're certainly dowsing the flames with petrol right now because that was the highlight of my Saturday for sure. Um, I'd, I'd paid Millwall £10 for the pleasure of watching that game. Uh, and I was pretty excited, to be honest, already when Matt Smith scored a towering header. Uh, obviously, I'd banged on about Liam Cooper scoring first on the betting show, and I'd forgotten that Matt Smith is basically equally tall and probably even better in the air. Uh, he scored a magnificent header, but that wasn't the best part. The best part before Sibley took charge was Matt Smith, who is, uh, you know, very much stereotyped as, as something of a battering ram, dropping into midfield, controlling a pass into him, nutmegging England's Wayne Rooney, and then playing the first time chipped or clipped through ball to Leonard, who ended up one on one. Uh, and force the keeper into a good save. And that, that would have made it 2-0. And Matt Smith would have looked like, you know, Wayne Rooney of old. Uh, never saw, <laughs> I never saw him doing that before he came on the Going Up, Going Down podcast with us. So that does make you think. Very true. Um, uh, any footballers listening, if you want to turn into Zlatan uh, instead of Battering Ram, then uh, come on the pod. Um, <laughs> Rooney, Rooney did have a good game. His passing, uh, as uh, certainly no rust for Rooney's passing, uh, his pass map, which you pointed out to me is a thing of absolute beauty um and i, I can't add too much about uh, the vicar of sibley but um apart, <laughs> a, apart from the fact that both, you're gonna persist with that both of us are an absolute sucker for 
ball-carrying midfield players, right? Like, not wide players, central midfield players who can dribble through the middle, who can carry the ball, who demand two defenders, who demand, um, you know, respect from the opposition and therefore open up uh, opportunities for their teammates. And it looks like that's what we're seeing from Sibley. The way that he found space with three perfect touches for that first goal um, was almost as impressive as the finishing that he showed as well. Um, he showed a bit of everything, didn't he? Because he showed that slaloming, as you said, but he was constantly running in behind. His link up with Waghorn for the second goal is exactly what you want from an advanced eight or a number 10. Um, and that that mixture of things, finishing with both feet, ability to carry the ball with the ball and relentless energy in running in behind when you don't have the ball, uh, that is pretty impressive. He he uh, he is certainly one to watch. I mean, Ryan said, I can imagine he's going to be starting every game from this point in. That might be a bit too much to ask and it might be a terrible decision for an 18-year-old to play nine games in 40 days. But uh, yeah, it's it's... It's almost a shame for Derby fans who will not want to see him leave, but many more performances like that and uh, things are going to get pretty pretty lively in terms of, of where Sibley's going to end up next. Um, we had... Yeah, I went, but just, I mean, with, with Derby as well, I just want to point out, I mean, you have to caveat everything you, you say with Derby at the moment, uh, understanding that there could be um, a points deduction in terms of sanctions for financial issues uh, coming soon. But just in a purely footballing point of view, they've, quite quickly become basically one of the most exciting teams in the whole division. They won their last three games, scoring three goals in each of them, beating Sheffield Wednesday at Hillsborough 3-1, beating uh, Blackburn 3-0 at home, which is a brilliant result, and then beating Millwall 3-2. Looking at their team as well, I mean, we've spoken to Ryan Conway on the podcast about the, the on the Going Up, Going Down podcast, about the, the young players coming through at Derby, because it isn't just Sibley. You've got Bird, uh, Max Bird playing alongside Wade Rooney. You've got Knight coming off the bench, as well, you've got Jaden Bogle getting back to that good form we saw from last season at right back. Matt Clark came in in the summer and it took it took his time to get used to the championship. But you know, if you speak to any Derby fan about his form since the turn of the year, they're absolutely raving about him. Tom Lawrence has been a, a player who I worry is fairly easy to play against when he is the team's kind of main attacking outlet. You mm. just stick two two men on him and just get him shooting from thirty five yards and basically job done. But when you've got Sibley coming in through the middle and Rooney sitting deep, suddenly it becomes much, much harder to stop him. So you know, whether or not they're going to have the deduction, I don't know. Um, but looking at the tables that stands at the moment and assuming they don't, they're on 54 points, they're three points off off, um, off Preston. I don't see any reason why, you know, it won't even be a late charge. I, I can see them being in the top six um, in, a, in a couple of weeks' time. I don't see any reason why with the personal they've got um, a manager who is quite clearly now getting the best out of his team, playing the kind of football that he wants to play. You know, Rooney's influence has been massive in that. I, you know, I, they're they're a huge, huge sleeper um, for this whole playoff picture. Um, so a lot's changed since I sat on the on the Sky Sports sofa with you and David Pratton back in I think October, saying that they were the EFL's crisis club. <laughs> I now think that they are you know, one of the most exciting teams going. Your first post-lockdown crush. It's great to see. Derby County, well done. You have the Alex seal of approval. Leeds United, that might be on the wane, I'm afraid. Um, what about Borough, <clears throat> what about Borough nil, Swansea 3? There was certainly no rust from the Swansea front three or front four as they raced into a, a, an early 3-0 lead, having hit the post before they'd even notched the first goal. Uh, it was Ayu, it was Kalulu, and it was Brewster. And it was Gallagher providing the energy behind them. And it was an absolutely brilliant early blitz. I mean, 
this is one of those where I want to say well done to Swansea for executing on a few early attacks in the way that other teams struggled to do. However, <laughs> however, one of the things that teams have struggled against is well-organised defensive units <laughs> who are not giving them space and are actually marking players and maybe tracking runners and maybe denying uh, you know, cutbacks and low crosses. Fair to say that this Middlesbrough performance as a unit, as a whole, but certainly the defensive unit and the midfield players, was about as disjointed a display as you're likely to see. Now, caveat, 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 they've had three months off, but you cannot excuse it because every team has had the same amount of time off. It was absolutely horrendous defending. They looked naive, they looked disjointed, they looked slow, they looked... They looked like they'd never played together in that formation. They looked like they'd never played together as individuals. And it, it, it reflects so poorly on the players. I'm afraid it doesn't reflect very well either on Jonathan Woodgate. And there have been too many times this season where we've sat here and said this. Um, you know, they're slightly running out of time to get over this hump and get into decent form. But they have done that at times this season. When we've really gone big anti-Borough, they have found a way to pick up. So I'm not saying it's done. And there are other teams we're about to talk about down with them who did not have a very good return to football as well. But Jesus Christ, they've got to play better than that because that was absolutely miserable. Um, I guess on the plus side, it's, it's exciting to see Brewster, um, a, a World Cup winner at under-17 level, someone who's always had a lot of a lot of hype as a young player. And he's got six goals in 12 games, which uh, as someone of his age... Playing championship football for the first time is, is certainly not, not something to sniff at. Um, do you have anything to add about Borough Swansea or would you like to talk about Blackburn Bristol City? I mean, just just quickly to mention with Swansea, you know, I, I spoke at the top of the podcast about how you have to almost think of this as being, you know, the beginning of a new season. And I think Swansea really showed that. This was this felt a bit like I mean, a very different personnel because of the transfer activity in January, but this felt like the Swansea that we saw back in August, you know, free-flowing, attacking, full of youth and energy. Um, I saw someone suggest, State. George, that they might be the, the most likely to punch their way in at this time. But we've also bigged up Cardiff and we've also bigged up Derby. So, you know, there's a few teams who are gunning for it. And that's, you know, that's very reactive, I would say. I mean, they, they scored three goals here very early on. They hit the woodwork three times as well as that. So, I mean, this really was a, a pumping, despite Middlesbrough having 17 shots. Um, you know, if you look at the XG, they, they managed just one. If you think they're three nil down shots. after, if you, and, and and if they're three nil up, you know you're three nil down after 34 minutes. You're probably going to be having a few digs, aren't you? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, really positive for Swansea and another side you can get excited about. You mentioned that front four of Ayu Gallagher, Kalulu, and Brewster. I mean, that is that is very very fun. So um, yeah, looking forward to seeing how it goes for the rest of the season. Yeah, they had plenty of pace and skill off the bench as well. Um, they've got. They are another team. A bit like Brentford, who who are known as a team comfortable in possession and sort of technical and aesthetically pleasing, but actually probably most dangerous in transition and uh, and 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 creating those moments on the counter is what they did so well early on in the game. It wasn't so much that they were, it wasn't so much that they were camped in Middlesbrough's half playing against a low block. They were they were managing to engineer either cleverly or just because Borough was so naive and disjointed, I don't know. But they were able to provide so many moments of playing into space and that's where the pace and the skill and the precision 
I just love that Andre Ayew is such like a nice part of this attack as well. You know, how often, <laughs> how often have we seen a player of his pedigree, shall I say, and of his wage um, and of his recent history, i.e. being out on loan, I, I think it was at Fenerbahce last season. It's almost unheard of that a player like that ends up knuckling down, buying into things and being like a, a, an unselfish part of of a of a team and i just love that i think it's 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 just really fun i love andre are you and you were quite enjoying his you were quite enjoying his brother's performance as well in the premier league this weekend so good weekend for the are you brothers um Black- and are you for an are you <laughs> blackburn beat bristol city 3-1 um i wouldn't say i've got necessarily as strong thoughts on this as some because i mean reading a lot of the the tweets from people watching this it sounded like blackburn were really impressive at the same time, their three goals were a cross that went all the way in, uh, a sort of absolute worldy goal from a centre-back, uh, sort of toe-punted into the corner. Well, actually not into the corner, toe-punted near the goalkeeper who pushed it into the goal. Uh, and then obviously a, a classic Adam, Arms- Adam Armstrong special uh, when they were 2-1 up running into space. Uh, so I'm, I'm kind of loath to overplay Blackburn's impressiveness and more likely to be concerned about Bristol City's performance. And, I mean, Streaky Lee said it himself afterwards. He was he was pretty upset about the whole thing. He's given it what all the other losing managers have given it, which is, we couldn't have done any more. The staff have, have you know, there's been no stone unturned in terms of the uncertainty of, of behind-closed-doors football. There are no excuses for the performance. He was very strong. And it feels like we talk about this more and more with with Lee Johnson and Bristol City it feels like they're just they just have not achieved what it felt like they could achieve this season and i think you know they who have they got on the weekend i i can't get the fixtures up quick enough but there's certainly a team that i'm keeping an eye on like potentially just really drifting away for the rest of the season they have, they have uh, wednesday Forest. at home sheffield Forest. wednesday at home uh, do they? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, then Sheffield Wednesday at home, then Forest away. Yeah, it's something then, to keep an eye on. And then Cardiff at home. I mean, yeah, I can see them sliding massively, probably. I mean, Daniel Bentley um, has been very popular since he joined. And there's been a lot of people saying, why on earth did Brentford let him go? And he was in, in fairness, he was massively under his uh, normal sort of bloopers per season numbers before lockdown. And you couldn't <laughs> he deny that. He made up for it, didn't he? <laughs> he certainly did make up for it. The worst of the lot he actually got away with where he basically collided with his own defender, dropped the ball, it was stabbed in, and, and the referee gave him a free kick, which was generous. But, uh, yeah, I mean, regardless of what I think about the performances, it's a really positive result for Blackburn, who are now one point away from the playoffs with the best goal difference out of any of the teams around there. Yeah, and I think the, the key to this one is probably the the mental side of, of what this does to Blackburn. Um, I, don't, I agree with you. I don't think they were particularly good on the day. Um, I don't necessarily think they were coming up an oppos- coming up against an opposition who were very good either. Um, looking at the shot map now, over on, over on info goal, basically the only good chance of the game was Patterson's header. Except for that, it's loads of just very, very small dots um, outside the area for, for both sides. So, But what I would say, and kind of the reason why um, you, know, you and I both tipped up Bristol City on the betting show was partly because... You know the break seemed to come at a bad time for Blackburn, who are really. You know, I'm not going to use your your least favourite word, momentum, but they were certainly on a good run and putting in churning out good performances every week above what we'd seen from August through to to say December. And it felt like the break came at a bad time. So even if this wasn't necessarily a good performance, to to beat a Bristol City side 
3-1 at home. Um, in doing so, pushing themselves up above them as well, I think will give them a big boost. And, you know, it's the it's back to the old intangibles. It'll get those players believing that they can do this. It'll get, you know, the that winning mentality hasn't gone anywhere. A loss here really could have, you know, could have given them a bit of an inferior, inferiority complex where you think like, ah, right, maybe it was just a good run. So I'm not getting too excited about Brett Blackburn's performance, but I do think that in terms of giving them a springboard to really push up into the top six, it's, um, it's pretty significant to get that win. And a quiz question for you on the spot. All right. In the last 10 games, nine pre-lockdown, one post-lockdown, uh, if you look at the form table across 10 games, or the results table across 10 games, Leeds are second, West Brom a third, pretty standard stuff, Cardiff and then Derby, we know that those teams have been in good form. Top of the table, 21 points from 10 games, more than two points per game, and only conceding seven in those 10 games, including zero in the last six games, is who, George? Wigan. Wigan. The athletic team from Wigan. And there they are mm. beating Huddersfield 2-0, back with a bang. No Leon Balogun, who I think we went quite big on pre-lockdown as being the sort of saviour of their season, coming in on loan from Brighton and shoring up their defence, having kept five clean sheets in a row pre-lockdown. Well, they kept a clean sheet without him, uh, which is huge, huge, huge for them, huge for the confidence of that back line. And the fans are absolutely buzzing. And, wh- and why wouldn't you be? I mean, they, they, they had 25% possession or something. They were very, very happy for the Cowley Brothers Huddersfield to have the ball. I haven't seen a Cowley Brothers team yet that, that is really notably good in possession and, and breaking teams down. And um, Wigan did a massive job on them. And, and some really standout performances as well from, well, obviously Jamal Lowe, who's really grown into his Wigan career, which I'm really thrilled about because he's had an amazing journey over the last few, five years or so. But also Big Kiefer. Maybe a theme of the weekend was people who are pigeonholed as target men like Matt Smith. And Big Kiefer showing that there's more to them than that. There's more to him. He peeled wide. He took on the defender. He whipped in a deadly cross and there was the first goal. It was um, just a really impressive, another really impressive performance from from this Wigan side. And a pleasure to watch, George. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, one, I think this is one for the for the data, the data nerds, because Wigan's form all season suggested they were getting very unlucky and that a run like this was around the corner. And, and here it is. So all credit to... To Paul Cook, or credit to you know the people in charge at Wigan for not pulling the trigger on a, a manager who'd um, who'd got them out of out of League One and into this position a couple of years ago and had done pretty well since. And it's good to see them progressing as they are, um, especially with Lowe and more finally showing that they are up to the task at this level. On Huddersfield, I'm going to make a, a bold prediction, a throwback there to yes. anyone who's listening back in kind of 2018. Love this. I don't I don't think they'll go down, but I think they will be in the relegation zone quite soon okay before turning it around right i think why well, i just think there seems to be this acceptance certainly around stoke and huddersfield that everything is going to be okay that they've got better managers in now and the improvements and the, uh, the performances have improved and that it's all going to be fine because inevitably they'll get the points that they need and I, i'm not necessarily sure that that is that is wholly true huddersfield have a tricky run of games coming up now uh, next up, they have Forest away. Then they go to Birmingham. Then they host Preston. I, I'm not seeing them getting necessarily many from that. I think if they get three points from those three games that have done, you know, that's probably par, isn't it? Winning one. Um, you know, if they can get four points from those three, that's avoiding defeat in, in two of them. That's a good effort. And, you know, it's a lot of this comes down to, to Hull and if they can somehow work out a way 
to pick up any points. But, you know, I'm looking at Barnsley behind Hull as being a side who are definitely going to pick up enough points to, to put the pressure on. So, yeah, I'm not... I, I'm, I'm not here, you know, any Huddersfield and Stoke fans listening, I'm, I'm not disagreeing with the Cowleys. I think Mike has had a great job at Stoke as well. And I, and I do think you're in a position where long-term things are going to improve. But you're not out of the woods yet. You know, this season isn't over. You are right in the mix for this relegation race. And you've got to pray that Hull consistently as bad as they have been. You've got to pray that Middlesbrough continue in the way they were on Saturday and that Barnsley don't turn it on because yeah, you, you're not much better at the moment. I was reading Martin Sykes, who's a Huddersfield fan. Uh, he writes match reports for the games. He's a brilliant writer, always bang on the money. So I wanted to see what he had uh, to say about this. And essentially, the words to describe Wigan were disciplined, physical, professional. They looked confident. And I think Huddersfield were anything but, which, you know, is, is hard to understand, really. That, you know, we, we've we've correctly, and I would stand by everything that we've said positive about um, about. Danny Cowley and his management team with his brother Nicky but I'm a little surprised and disappointed I suppose having gone hard on, on those guys uh, over the years that I, I just expected much more from I just expected them to come out the block to be one of the teams that came out of the blocks quicker because I would have thought that you know in whatever way that they manage a club it, it would have been they would have been at the forefront of handling such a crisis and sort of cajoling a, a team and a squad into a fast start. So I, I'm feeling a little disappointed, a little let down. I dare say the Huddersfield fans are too. Um, talking about discipline, physical, professional, not necessarily words we've used for Barnsley FC over the course of this season, but they went to QPR and that's what they were. They were disciplined, they were physical, they were energetic and intense. That is something that we recognise from this Gerhard Struber side. Uh, and they did a job on QPR, which I thought was uh, one of the most impressive performances and, and results, fully deserved as well. No qualms from QPR fans in any way here. Um, Struber went for a, a pretty lively starting eleven as well, um, whether it's because he is going to be tinkering more than most and he whether it's people who've impressed in this bizarre sort of short pre-season that they've had but Romal Palmer I'm not going to lie to you George I'd never heard of Romal Palmer he's been he's been sitting in Barnsley's under 23s for a few years uh, as as far as and you know I keep an eye on these things his name's never popped up he's never popped up and there he was in the heart of midfield um Brave on the ball, brave in the tackle, part of a, a really good Barnsley performance, providing cover to Alex Mowat and a good partner in the central midfield for him. So really positive uh, win for Barnsley. Uh, and, quite, and it was a lovely goal as well. Quite nice that the two you know, 20-year-olds who are thrust into the team, you've got Romal Palmer, who is an academy graduate from Manchester City, uh, and then you've got the goal scorer, Samoas, who they signed from FC United of Manchester. So two people, both based in Manchester, with very, very different starts to life in English football. Um, you know, both just kind of coming in from the cold and having a massive impact on Barnsley's promotion, uh, sorry, promotion, uh, survival chances. And, you know, the most impressive thing to me about this Barnsley performance was that for everything we know about QPR, they've been pretty poor at the back, but are very lively going forward. And then as a chair and Samuel have three players who are, you know, can, can trouble the best defences in this league. And to go 1-0 up after seven minutes at QPR and restrict them to just eight shots, of which four were in the box. I mean, that Strong. says to me, it, it, this is either 
a fluke <laughs> and a really poor performance from QPR or Gerhard Struber has sorted out this defence. Well, they've certainly and, given, um, they have given us false hope in the past this season, but it's worth pointing out since Struber's appointment in November, 22 games he's been in charge of in the league and Barnsley have the 13th best record in the division uh, since he's been in charge. So regardless of, of kind of what happens, his stint in charge has been very impressive, has had a big impact. Uh, and that's mm. that's worth pointing out whatever happens at the end of the season. Uh, LUFC blog, uh, I'm not sure why they were so worried about Ebere Eze, but I'm very glad they were. They tweeted on Saturday to point out that, I mean, obviously this is in a losing performance, but Eze, with 10 completed dribbles against Barnsley today, the most by a player in a championship game since Adama Traore's acts of mass destruction in May 2018. So well done, Abere. Still, so, someone in their Sunday scouting report said he was still, you know, head and shoulders above. But uh, it's difficult. It's a difficult sport to just drag your team to a win, even if you're, uh, even if you're a magnificent player. Uh, Hull nil, Charlton one. George, I um, I paid ten pounds for this one, and it was, I would, I would say it's like. So I don't watch horror movies, right? Personally, it's not. Oh, it's not. You're missing out. I would say it's not my bag. I don't. I don't relish the feeling of being on a knife edge, and I certainly don't choose to put myself through that feeling for, let's say, ninety minutes or two hours uh, by watching a, a horror movie or something with like unbelievable tension. Um, but that's basically what I got when I paid Tigers TV ten quid to watch Hull Charlton, because oh, it was tough. It was tough. It was. It was scrappy. It was low quality. There wasn't a huge amount of confidence on show. Hull were anemic, disjointed, just looked I mean, a bit like Borough, although they they were slightly less disastrous, but they just looked really well, they looked like a team that's kind of been fractured and, and that's what they that's what they are. They were kind of fractured by the loss of key players. They have been eviscerated since the end of January. You whipped out an unbelievable stat on five live which i'm going to let you repeat now but where where were they on deadline day was it top half or at least very close yeah they were 13th they were a couple of places above derby and they were on 39 points they picked up just two points since losing grisitsky and bowen um so it's it's one of the worst runs it's one of the worst runs i can remember us ever covering i mean the, the, the funny thing about it is is that if they do go down they are going to be i mean uh, this is before you get into the politics with the with the um, Alams, uh, the owners at Hull. But realistically, given the money that they brought in in January for those two players, and given the the changing landscape of, of football, I mean they they should have resources that other League One teams could only dream about next season. Um, which will be interesting to see how they go about it because they haven't been the best run club over the last um, few years. Uh, it's, it's hard to really see a reason why they would improve. The only reason why they could improve, and this should have been the case um, on the weekend, is that their fixtures give them the opportunity uh, where they have Middlesbrough, um, you know, not their next game, but the game after that is Middlesbrough on Thursday, the 2nd of July at home. And, you know, unless Middlesbrough pull out something extraordinary on on the weekend, that is going to give them another opportunity at home to pick up some points themselves and also push another team closer to relegation. And it's worth pointing out some positives from the Charlton perspective because Lord knows they've had a tough few months as well uh, off the field and with various players unavailable for selection. It was not 
that pretty and it was certainly not a complete performance but what was notable is that they rolled their sleeves up and they were professional and they got the job done uh and they they look they they should have been further ahead they should have put the game to bed um if i were if i was lee Boyer or if i was johnny jackson on the sideline i would have been i mean pretty close to a heart attack i think given how many chances they did have and then the you know because they didn't take them the last 10 minutes were a little bit nervy but Lockyer and Pierce at the heart of defence were fantastic. Um, big reason why they kept a clean sheet. Oshilaja playing very much out of position at left back. It was a pleasant performance considering he's not the type of guy I would expect to be, um, you know, particularly suited to playing left back. But he's he's actually showed this season that he can play pretty much anywhere. And, you know, while he's not always the most comfortable on the ball, and he certainly didn't look that comfortable providing crosses into into the box. He uh, he worked hard and he and he did really well. And Cullen in, in the midfield as well was was always available. He's such a brave player on the ball, but also scrapping for everything in midfield. So um, a good win for Charlton, a big big win for Charlton. They are out of the relegation zone. Um, you know when we talked to Johnny Jackson early on about the potential for points per game to be applied in, uh, to be applied in the championship, that would have seen Charlton relegated, even though. They'd only dropped into the relegation zone for the first time just a couple of days before uh, the coronavirus hit. So, uh, you know, now I look at them in 19th place um, and you think, blimey, yeah, that that it's funny how that would have worked. And, and within one match of the restart, you're like, oh, right. That, it, it, really, it really would have been like a game of musical chairs as it was in, in some of the other divisions. George, we had three 1-1s to finish us off. They all had late goals to make it 1-1. Reading conceding a late equaliser to Stoke. Sheffield Wednesday scoring a late equaliser against Nottingham Forest and Luton scoring a late equaliser against Preston. Which of those games has the thing that you want to talk about the most within it? Well, I've kind of touched on on Stoke, I guess. I mean, maybe we're going back up towards the top of the table, but it was a a troubling performance from Forest, let's say. Um, Forest were not very good. They took it. They took the lead, and will feel aggrieved that they conceded late on uh, and squandered that lead. But a lovely goal Bay, from Lolly. What a first touch! That really, was. really good goal from Lolly. And it, and it gets you know it's it's Forest relying on a bit of individual quality from somewhere in order to to get them in front. And also a brilliant ball from Matty Cash as yeah, well. Yeah. It, it must be said um, over the top. But it, it shouldn't cloud the fact that they were second best on the day. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure there'll be Forest fans willing to point out that picking up points and coming very close to picking up three points when not playing well is a sign of a good team. And that, that might have some legs, especially towards this late stage of the season where points are very important. Um, and I'm sure Forest fans would also think that given what happened at the top end of the table with none of the three top teams even scoring a goal, this keeps their dreams alive of possibly even pushing into the top two. But as I said last week, I'd, I'd keep an eye over your shoulders as well because there are a few teams, you know, there are probably three teams behind Forest and Dibble at the moment who I would see as being um, better than them at this stage. And so Forest need to, to, to ensure that they get the points on the board needed to, to, to finish in that top six because that's not, that's not done yet. You're getting close to predicting that Forest might drop out of the top six, but you didn't do that. You did not do well, that. We... we we, um, you know, we tweeted this morning saying, you know, asking people to give us their, their top sixes. And I think Forrest are basically the most interesting one here because I think a lot of people assume that, that they're in, you know, and, and that that's done. And, you know, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that it's not overwhelmingly likely that they probably will be. Um, but interesting to note that of the, I think, kind of 
20 odd entries we've had a few more now since we started recording um uh, more people have left out for us than i thought so it's it's clearly not just me who's wondering if, if they're possibly going to be one to go. I mean, if I were to do my top six in terms of purely the most likely thing that's going to happen for us would be in there. But with my betting hat on, um, I think the top six market is an interesting one because I think that Forest are very vulnerable and they're, and they're heavy odds on to, to get there. From Sheffield Wednesday's perspective, better, I would say. Better. I was pretty concerned given what had happened pre-lockdown. I was concerned about how they might come out the blocks. Now, of course, they did go 1-0 down and it, and it needed a late goal from a corner um, you know, to get a point. But interesting that they went 3-5-2. Not something we've seen that much from Monk in his 50 managerial stints at various championship clubs over the last decade or so. Um, and they played well within that. I think the system worked well. It helped get the best out of Bannon, who was able to you know, be as he is not particularly efficient without the ball, uh, defensively, shall we say, out of possession because Kieran Lee and Mas Luongo were alongside him, but he was pulling the strings. He was the, the midfield metronome in possession, uh, which is where he is so good. Um, you had Kadeem Harris and Josh Murphy as uh, the wingbacks, which, I mean, in sort of, in football manager terms, you'd say that neither of them would necessarily be natural fits uh, in those wing-back positions. But you can also see that, you know, going forward, those are going to be very, very good attacking wing-backs. So if they can prove themselves to be good enough defensively, then that's going to be a really interesting thing to watch. And then you had you had a, a hint, George, a hint of overlapping centre-backs. I'm sure Sheffield Wednesday fans, and I dare say the staff, would, uh, would not want to uh, be seen to be copying their rivals from across the city, Sheffield United. But... I saw Iorfa in the box. I saw him start an attack and keep going. Uh, th- that was not a set piece. He was in the box from a right wing cross, and that was from open play. So I'm I'm calling it now. Borner as well on the left side. He was stepping into midfield a bit as well. So something to watch. And I think we probably had the best individual moment of the weekend in this game, which is a, a scarcely believable goal line clearance from Worrell uh, of Forest. It was absolutely unbelievable. And we had one of my least favourite individual moments of the weekend which was when, uh, in injury time, with a corner coming in, Alpha Semedo decided to do that thing that I do because I don't like heading the ball because it hurts my head, where he, sort of, he, he jumped towards it, but quite cleverly put his head lower than it could have been in order not to have to head the ball. Uh, and, of course, Connor Wickham headed it into the top corner instead. So, I mean, I would be furious with Semedo, personally. Um, I don't buy that he just about missed it. I think he... I just can't understand what on earth he was doing. If he heads that away, it's it's full time pretty much and they take the three points. So pretty furious there. The last game to touch on, Nathan Jones's return to the dugout at Luton. Did he play the diamond? Yes, he damn well did. And there was <laughs> there was Izzy Brown at the tip of it, which uh, which gets us very exciting. Uh, excited, I should say. This was a late equaliser from Callum McManaman. I spoke to Ollie Walker, who watched this one, Luton fan, to see how positive he was feeling. Not that positive is the answer. Uh, a poor game, to be frank, to be expected. But even by COVID standards, I imagine this was right down there, he said. Uh, <laughs> a, a bit lucky to snatch the draw. Uh, having said that, it's not like Preston were miles the better side. They were also playing their part in what was a pretty turgid game. Um, Preston was solid, though, created a big opportunity, took it, came out for the second half much better than Luton uh, after a poor and even first half. You'd be pretty upset from a Preston perspective here. Um, to concede a goal more or less on the counter-attack. It started from, 
you know, them delivering the ball and Sluga catching it and it starts from there. That's pretty unforgivable uh, that late in the game when you're defending a lead. Uh, and I would be ticking if I was Preston because it was a great chance for them to sort of strengthen their position in the playoffs. Um, but from a Luton point of view, it, it's kind of a funny one, George, right? Like they were quite excited about the form pre-lockdown. They were quite excited about Jones coming in. They drew and they've actually gone bottom. In, you know, that they, they, they probably didn't expect to be looking at the table on Saturday, 5 p.m. and see them bottom of the league. But that's uh, that's what's happened. So, um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 it's still I'd, I'd still say it was a good, a good weekend for them because given the form of some of those clubs on kind of 41, 42 points, then how many points is going to keep you up this season? That's quite a good little thing to end on. A nice, a nice prediction. What what could 21st position will end the season on? So the, the bottom club you stay at. Yeah. Are you asking me now or can I tell you later? I'm asking you <laughs> right now. Okay. Eight games left. Eight Cur- games left. team in 21st is currently on 41. I think yeah. the team in 21st, I'm so bad at this, uh, 50? Which would be which would be seriously high, by the way. That's a really high. Yeah, I, I reckon. I reckon lower. Okay. I think I reckon forty. Forty-eight. Okay. In which case, Luton need twelve. So they need four wins from eight. There's going to be some teams having some very bad runs oh. if that's the case. Um, it's exciting stuff. We've run on a lot because we're so excited to actually be talking about football matches again, and I only realized this morning that we've got Brentford West Brom on Friday night we've got Preston Cardiff on the same points but with the playoff dividing line between them uh, at 12:30 on Saturday and then Leeds Fulham on Saturday at 3 p.m. all on Sky as well uh, and clearly some other tasty fixtures down at the bottom as well in that game so it's seriously exciting we are going to be back later on in the week with various bits and bobs going up going down of course in the middle of the week the betting show, which really needs to go a lot better, to be honest with you, George, uh, this week, I think it's fair to say. Early pressure on us after a poor start. Uh, and, and Monday night, League 2 playoff action as well. So if you're listening to this before 5.30 on Monday, A, well done for getting stuck in early doors, but also make sure you get uh, make sure you get Sky Sports on this evening because certainly the Colchester Exeter game is set up very nicely. 